Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And once again, I have with me the illustrious Dr. Tom Metkis, who, as listeners will know well, is assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology here at Johns Hopkins he works uh, in the Echo Lab. He works in the cardiac uh, surgical ICU and is an all-around fantastic guy and knower of many, many things, and I am thrilled to have him back. Tom, welcome back to the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be back. Um, it's a beautiful fall day here in Baltimore, so I hope everyone out there is having a beautiful day wherever you guys are and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Awesome. So today we are going to talk about cabbage surgery. That's coronary artery bypass grafting. We're going to talk a little about the background and history. We're going to talk about kind of preoperative optimization. Obviously, this is going to be geared more towards the anesthesiologist and the intensivist than it would be toward a internal medicine doctor or cardiologist. So there's a lot more that Tom is going to focus on in his own practice than what we're going to talk about here for these areas. Really, we're going to ask him to focus a lot on the intraoperative portion, and then we'll talk a little about postoperative optimization as well. All right, so let's jump in. So, Tom, give me the give me the history of this. Uh, you know, how long has cabbage been around, and and how do we know it's worthwhile? Yeah, so that's great. So, uh, this is a great topic, um, an important topic, obviously in clinical cardiology, a very important topic in uh, cardiac anesthesiology, and you know, this is interesting because there's a lot of shared history here uh, from between the clinical cardiologists and the OR, and you know, certainly uh, there's really great articles out there people are interested in, um, you know, early coronary bypass surgery and all these sorts of things and how the technique uh, evolved. But really, um, uh, a couple things kind of happened in tandem um, that was really the development of coronary angiography um, by, by Mason Sones, and that kind of gave people an, an ability to visualize coronary obstruction. Um, and shortly thereafter, people started to put the pieces together to say that it was actually coronary obstruction and, um, you know, obstruction of blood flow to the myocardium that caused symptoms of angina, and, and later it was determined MI, and, and all that history sort of evolved through the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and then it was really in the, in the 70s that people subjected patients to the first randomized trials of cabbage, and, and you guys will remember this was certainly far before um, uh, percutaneous coronary intervention was developed. So really, cabbage was the mode of revascularization. So these were fundamentally trials of um, coronary artery patients um, who were essentially randomized to what was medical therapy at the time versus coronary artery bypass grafting. Um, it's kind of in the mid-70s, and, and nearly all these patients had vein graft as the, as the conduit. You know, we'll talk about the choice of conduit. Um, and medical therapy then was really um, much different than medical therapy now. You know, uh, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, um, even an aspirin for sure statins. All of those things are subsequent developments. So, you know, medical therapy at the time was really um, maybe nitrates, um, maybe tender loving care, um, these sorts of things. So um, that said... Those trials in aggregate, when you meta-analyze them, suggested a benefit to cabbage, particularly in the strata of patients who had diffuse coronary disease, who had more severe angina, 
um, and who had a low EF. And it's interesting that even with all those historical limitations that we talked about uh, or alluded to, the modern trials of cabbage that we'll talk about more actually show those same signals. That is to say that the patients who benefit the most from cabbage are the patients with low EF, the patients with diabetes, and the patients with more diffuse coronary disease. So those sort of early tenants of um, uh, kind of benefit that you saw in the, in the early trials actually kind of persist in the, in the modern day. That's really interesting. So despite the fact that we now have much more robust medical therapy, we still don't see a benefit uh, or a change in benefit. The cab is still going to be uh, a better option for those people with those more significant diseases. Yeah, I think the big take home in kind of aggregating a lot of the pivotal trials and looking at the guidelines would be that the, the patients who really have a randomized trial documented mortality or morbidity benefit to cabbage are the patients who have low EF patients who have diabetes, and patients who have more diffuse coronary disease. Now, you know, if you guys out there are epidemiologists, you might say, but boy, you know, to be randomized in those trials, you had to be equally suited to either therapy. That is to say, you had to be able to be randomized as surgery. You had to be a surgical candidate, right? And so that's, you know, what do you guys call that? That's generalizability, right? Does the trial result apply to the patient in front of me? In other words, you know, if you have a patient who's not a surgical candidate, they wouldn't be enrolled in that trial, right? That would not be applicable to them if someone who's frail or has a porcelain aorta or something like that, right? But suffice it to say, what, what one can kind of intuit is that if you are equally eligible for either, you know, strategy, um, and you would have been randomized in those trials, that the really the big subgroups of benefit um, for cabbage are diabetic patients with multivessel disease, low EF patients with multivessel disease, and the multivessel disease patients who have more diffuse coronary disease, that is um, more severe chronic occlusions, more calcification, really disease that's not anatomically suitable for PCI. And, and the, the way that can be codified is something called the syntax score, but for general knowledge purposes, it's more diffuse, more severe coronary disease. Now, Tom, to be included in these trials, uh, at least the ones that looked at PCI, uh, and we'll talk more about them, did you have to be eligible to go to the cath lab only or to actually receive a stent? In other words, if you had such diffuse disease that it wasn't even stentable, were you included in the trial? Yeah, so, so, it's really, so that's a good question. And again, you're really getting into like trial generalizability. So, so taking the 30,000 foot view, you know, you could imagine, um, and the way I like to think about this is, are you a patient who is going to get revascularized or are you going to get medical therapy is sort of question one. And then if you're gonna get revascularized, what's the best mode of revascularization, cabbage or PCI, right? And so sort of different trials, you have to be clear what the comparison arm is. Are you comparing cabbage to medical therapy? Are you comparing cabbage to PCI? So there's kind of a series of trials in both of those arms. I think the, the one that probably is most relevant to your question is something called the Syntax trial, which is kind of a pivotal trial. And this trial took patients who had multivessel coronary disease, and they randomized them to cabbage or to multivessel PCI with a drug-eluting stent. And this, these patients were followed out to five years, and the composite endpoint was death, MI, repeat revascularization, and stroke. So four kind of uh, component composite endpoint. Um, and essentially, that's really the trial that gave kind of the best modern evidence that shows that as the coronary complexity increases, the benefit to cabbage is improved. So on the composite in all comers, um, uh, cabbage was favored over multivessel PCI. 
that was predominantly driven by repeat revascularization. So in other words, cabbage is a more durable mode of revascularization than, than multivessel PCI, at least in syntax. And then when you broke it out into kind of a stratified analysis by the tertile of syntax score, meaning that you, know, you divided the patients up into thirds and you said, okay, the patients with the most complex coronary disease, the least complex coronary disease, and in the middle, um, cabbage really kicked butt in the highest tertile and the middle tertile in the lowest tertile of syntax score, i.e. the least complex um, uh, CAD, there was really equipoise, so in a, in a kind of secondary analysis. Now, um, your point is well taken, which is to say that you had to be reviewed by the core lab and be equally eligible for either arm in syntax. That is to say, you had to be anatomically suitable to either get PCI or cabbage. Now, it turns out that if you were screened in that trial and then um, not eligible for one of the other arms based on angiography review and the trial team review, you were placed into a registry um, and then followed. So there was a group of people who were only eligible for surgery, um, and it turns out those patients actually did pretty well, comparable to the surgical arm in the randomized kind of uh, cohort. And then there was a group of patients who were turned down for surgery and went to PCI. And as you would intuit, those are patients who were too sick for surgery and they actually did worse. Sure. Not to say that PCI has a bad therapy in those guys, but it's basically to say if you're too sick for surgery, you're high risk you're for, pretty for badness, right? Yeah. So, so you're exactly right. So, so be careful when you guys are looking at these trials because you need to ensure the patient in front of you would have been eligible to be randomized in either arm. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, let me ask you this. Is it possible, and uh, there's no way to know this for sure, obviously, but that the reason for the results of the syntax trial is because we just aren't good enough yet at stenting to m get diffuse disease under control completely? Is it possible that as, well, I don't know, stents get better and the technique gets better and you're able to maybe get m more territory stented or get more diffuse disease stented that the outcomes will be better. Yeah, it's a great it's a great uh, point, and maybe some of you guys out there in the audience like do um, drug trials or investigational um, uh, device trials, things like that. And that's one of the fun things about doing device work is that by the time your trial of your new device has published its five year outcome results, the devices are better, so you can never sort of disprove that the devices are improving. So I think that's true, and certainly advocates for for uh, you know that the the stents are better, PCI is better. That's true. Um, you know, cabbage is getting better too, right? That the techniques of cabbage are evolving, conduit choices evolving, all these things. So, so your your um, uh, intuition is correct that both arms, both kind of treatment strategies are getting better and better, right? And so, I think that that um, is a an impetus to do more research, and, and b um, it's an impetus to do high-quality observational research, right? Like research that doesn't require a randomization and a five-year follow-up to kind of hint at some of these points. Um, you know, I, I think that um, in syntax um, and in other trials, of course, also that, that um, uh, complete revascularization, meaning you got every stenosis, those patients obviously do better than patients who didn't have complete revascularization, but that's obviously confounded by um, severity of coronary disease, right? Um, now, you would say, well, okay, but a PCI just treats the lesion that you're stenting versus cabbage treats the whole segment of vessel that you're bypassing, so that's, that's some of it. Um, and then as we'll talk about, the other component of it is medical therapy. Um, you know, 
if you're getting PCI, you're getting dual antiplatelet therapy. Not everyone in cabbage is getting that. And we, we know that dual antiplatelet therapy reduces MI. And so are you confounded on the medical therapy side? So there's a lot of moving parts. Um, but I think the impetus then is to, is to really continue to study it uh, in a rigorous way, both in the randomized setting and in the observational setting. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the Syntex trial. Are there other contemporary trials that uh, people should know about? Yeah, so I think the other big one, um, there, there are many, but another big one that's important um, addresses the issue of cabbage in the low EF patient population. Um, and this is really, again, to echo the theme that is to say, and you guys know that heart failure therapy has also evolved um, dramatically over the past certainly 20 years and even the past 10 to 15 years. Um, and we really didn't have good um, trial data for contemporary management of ischemic cardiomyopathy vis-a-vis the choice to go to cabbage. And so um, the STITCH trial was is an important trial. And these guys randomized patients with low EF, so EF under 35%, and multivessel coronary disease to best medical therapy or to cabbage. And best medical therapy included both heart failure therapy, you know, ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, da-da-da, as well as coronary therapy, statin, aspirin, um, these sorts of things. And then the cabbage arm got the same treatment as medical arm plus surgical revascularization. I mean, this was a primary composite endpoint of death and heart failure hospitalization. And out to five years of follow-up, there was a reduction in heart failure hospitalization and a trend towards improvement in mortality in the cabbage arm. And when they extended that follow-up out to 10 years uh, or even longer, those mortality curves continued to separate. So there was a durable mortality benefit to surgical revascularization in the low EF patient population who have multivessel coronary disease. On average, the patients who got surgical revascularization lived an average of 18 months longer, um, and the absolute risk reduction was something like, like 8%. So the number needed to treat was 12 patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy to save one life for cabbage relative to medical therapy. Um, so you know the data is really, really good. Over the long term, um, trend to five years, documented benefit at 12 years, and of course, that has an interesting implication for the patient in front of you, isn't it? Which is that, yes, there's great long-term outcome, but you have to get them through the surgery, right? So to be considered for that benefit, you had to live long enough to, to get it, right? And so again, the question there is, is your patient going to survive surgery? Are you a surgical candidate, right? Um, so one could say that if if you are expected to live in the five to 10 year time frame after surgery, you can evince a durable mortality benefit to cabbage compared to medical therapy. Yeah, all right. So if you have a low EF, if you're a diabetic, if you have diffuse complicated coronary disease, you're probably better off with a cab, assuming you can survive the surgery. All right, so let's, uh, we've done, uh, if you look back, listeners, you'll find some episodes uh, that I've done with some of our cardiac anesthesiologists that cover topics of sort of how specifically to manage the cardiac anesthesia intraoperatively, and Tom obviously isn't going to talk about that, but I do want to get his opinion on some of the things that that are very related to his practice. So let's talk, for example, about echo, Tom. So when you're uh, thinking about TEE, uh, whether it's in the operating room or elsewhere, where you wherever you may do it, uh, what do you think of, what are some of the kind of risks and benefits of a TEE? Yeah, I think TEE is sort of a foundational skill, certainly for uh, folks in cardiac anesthesiology, uh, in many institutions that, that, that practices with cardiology, and in some institutions that's shared. Um, and uh, I hope you guys are getting good experience with intraop TEE. I think it's an important skill. Um, for sure, 
patients coming to the OR for cabbage could be considered for intra-op TE. It's generally a very safe procedure. Fortunately, the complication rate's under 1%. Um, the risk of a, of a fatal complication and esophageal perforation, dying from an esophageal perforation, is less than 1 in 10,000 cases. So, so not zero, but, but, uh, but, but very low, fortunately. Um, and it turns out that in, when you look at kind of big series of intraop TE, that it can actually change the intraoperative management in a substantial percentage of cases, um, up to 8% to 10% of, of your OR cases will have a different management because of your intraop TE, which I think is, is pretty cool. So that could be anything from appreciating a previously undiagnosed valve, valve lesion to changing the estimate of the EF and thus the bypass plan and the plan to come off bypass to finding another abnormality um, to identifying aortic atherosclerosis and changing the, the, the cannulation strategy. Um, so all of those things um, can really change the surgical plan and improve the patient care. So I think getting handy with the intraop TEE, of course, getting the images, acquiring the images, interpreting the images is component one, but that also really ties into like the, the OR team-based approach, right? That you've made the diagnosis on the echo and how do you communicate that to the surgical team um, in, a, in an efficient um, and persuasive way that the operative plan should change on the basis of your images. Um, and then really have like a collaborative discussion about it. So I think intraop TEs are a really, really important skill. Um, at least in a, a series of valve patients, the, the intraop TE induced a second pump run in about 5% of cases based on valve dysfunction and other sorts of things. So I think it is an important skill and for sure someone who's gonna be taking care of cardiac patients would be very well served and, and more importantly, their patients well served by getting handy with the TEE probe. Yeah, absolutely. Now Tom, and I know some of our cardiac anesthesia colleagues uh, feel that if you have a TEE in, you may be able to avoid a swan since you can get a lot of that same information about cardiac output function um, from your TEE. Would you agree with that? Oh, it's such a great question. Boy, uh, so this is kind of getting into the hemodynamic monitoring, right? And so, you know, I think the role of, of hemodynamic monitoring, put it in a big bucket, is 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 changing and everyone's looking at hemodynamic monitors with a, with a critical eye and I think that's uh, I think that's important. You know, it's it's always hard to do high quality kind of truth, kind of identifying, truth clarifying research with diagnostic devices. I think that's fundamentally a hard thing to study. And in the bucket of hemodynamic monitoring, you'll see everything from a swan to these devices that check pulse pressure variation um, to, uh, to echo-based hemodynamic monitoring. And, you know, my take on this, which is admittedly not as mature as maybe some others, is that when you meta-analyze some of these data, um, there may be a benefit immersion to, to what they call goal-directed hemodynamic monitoring at the time of, at the time of cabbage. And, and that can um, really be targeting sort of filling pressures, targeting a cardiac output, and, and some people have suggested that reduces the risk of renal dysfunction, multisystem organ dysfunction. You know, I don't know of a lot of data that compares um, hemodynamic optimization with a SWAN to an ECHO. Um, you know, and certainly there are different different um, kind of clinical situations where one would be favored over the other. You know, if you have torrential TR or intracardiac shunt, maybe the SWAN would be a little bit less favored versus the echo, which gives more anatomic information. Um, so, so I think it is um, very much practice dependent. I think whatever you choose to use, you should be good at it. So, um, you know, if you if you always use SWANs, then then you should probably continue to use SWANs. If you always use an echo and you feel handy with the echo, that's a great choice too. And then be clear in your minds what the question you're trying to answer is. Um, you know, the, the echo obviously goes in and then comes out versus the, um, 
Swan, you can have in for a couple of days if you're going to be titrating therapy. There are small TE probes that can go in and stay in for a couple of days, and, and different people have experience with those devices. Um, but I think it's a really interesting field. It's a moving target, and I think we'll get more data on this as it comes out. Um, probably the most important thing is whatever hemodynamic monitoring paradigm you, you use um, is to always correlate your hemodynamic monitor with the patient in front of you, right? You never want to get steered off into like, oh, but the echo showed the EF's normal, but you know the patient's in cardiogenic shock, right? So there's those sort of situations that come up. And then um, to the extent that um, ERACs and ERAS and all these things you know, uh, show benefit, uh, I think they show benefit in part because of kind of team-based care and attention to protocol. So if your institution has a good hemodynamic monitoring protocol, um, it's important that every member of the team understand it, um, understand when to deviate from it, um, and kind of really get the nuances of it. And that's really, I think, how you optimize outcomes with hemodynamic monitoring, irrespective of whether it's with an echo or a swan or a pulse pressure monitor. Right. And I'll emphasize a couple things that you said that I think are really important. One, that you want to be good at whatever you're doing, so you don't want to, for example, hear uh, somebody talk about TEE, think it's great, and all of a sudden decide that even though you've been putting swans in everyone, you're going to tomorrow stop and do the TEE instead. Uh, the tool is only as good as the operator, and so whatever it is you're doing, you want to be good at it uh, and comfortable with it. And then two, uh, as you said, really team-based. So, for example, you need to take into account if you're putting in swans that maybe they may be being used in the ICU afterwards. It may not be just for the operating room. You may not have echoes that stay in. You may not have cardiac anesthesiologists working in your post-op uh, ICU and your cardiac ICU who can come do an echo. Um, you may not want to be taking the echo in and out, so you might opt for a swan. On the other hand, you may echo everybody, and you may have the ability to leave an echo in, and so you may say, we don't need the swan. So it really uh, can vary quite a bit, and also from patient to patient, as you said. So I think that's a great summary uh, of that. So, Tom, let's talk about, um, for cabbage, uh, you can do it on pump or what's called off pump. I found these to be very confusing terms when I was a resident. Uh, but tell me what they mean and uh, if there's any difference or why we might do one or the other. Yeah, it's great. So, you know, the, the paradigm, you've, you've brought the patient, you've decided the patient has an indication for surgery, right? You've brought them to the OR, you've done a good TE, um, and now you guys are discussing the surgical plan. And, um, you know, really the idea um, that has been proposed is that you can use the uh, cardiopulmonary bypass machine, right, and go on pump and um, arrest the heart and, um, you know, do your bypass grafts or your coronary bypass or your IMA. Um, or, um, on occasion, the surgeons will say, let's do off-pump surgery, means, meaning that the heart is not arrested, um, the heart's beating, and, you know, they sort of tug up the, the distal vessel and stabilize it and sew to it while the heart's beating, the patient never goes on, on bypass. Um, now, um, that ostensibly seems great, right? So, those of you who have cardiac practices will know that the bypass, um, Pump is an inflammatory stimulus. Um, the patients can come out vasodilated. Um, you know, you have to be anticoagulated. There's bleeding concerns. So the idea was that if we can avoid that and mitigate that, we would improve a whole host of things. Um, we'd improve multi-system organ dysfunction. We'd improve bleeding. We'd improve um, what people call pump head or delirium afterwards. Maybe we'd even improve long-term neurocognitive outcome because people aren't getting showered with emboli when you clamp the aorta. Um, this seems like a great idea. You know, how could this not be a good thing? Um, and so, you know, uh, it is a great idea. I'll, I'll, I think that's true. And there subsequently were a series of trials that looked at off-pump versus on-pump cabbage. Um, and they're very well done trials. Um, experienced 
off-pump surgeons, um, and patients coming into the OR for CABG were randomized to one versus the other, to off-pump surgery versus on-pump surgery. Um, and kind of the two big trials, so were the, called the RUBY trial and the coronary trial. And one of the trials, the, the primary outcome was death MI stroke. They also looked at um, uh, delirium and quality of life and completion of revascularization and, and all manner of outcomes. But the bottom line is that um, in one of the trials, there was no benefit to on, off-pump versus on-pump surgery. And then the other, they were actually showed worse outcomes in the off-pump group with more um, MI repeat revascularization um, in the off-pump group. And it's interesting, when they, they then compared number of grafts in on-pump versus off-pump, the off-pump patients actually got fewer grafts. And, and for those of you who have done these cases, you can imagine why that is, because if the heart's beating and not arrested, it's surely hard to lift it up and sew to the back side of it or get grafts on the high lateral wall and these sorts of things. So. Um, it turned out that the completeness of revascularization was less in the um, off-pump group. And that really reflected in the repeat revascularization MI outcome. I think just last week or in the past two weeks, there was another large observational analysis, very well done um, uh, matched observational analysis of off-pump versus on-pump surgery that was published in JAK that showed the same thing. So the preponderance of evidence actually suggests that routine off-pump surgery actually doesn't get you anything. You may even have worse outcomes vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis revascularization completeness. Um, so at least the inference that I draw from that is to say that routine use of off-pump surgery is not indicated. Now, you all may have individual patients that would be well-suited to that approach, um, but routinely um, does not seem to be an advantage to off-pump surgery versus on-pump surgery in most patients. What about a patient with, and I understand there hasn't been a trial, but what do you think about a patient with, for example, a very... Um, porcelain aorta. Yeah, so th I think that's exactly right. So there are subgroups of patients who are probably well-suited to this approach, right? So this is the patient who's just got um, rock-hard calcification of the entire aorta, you know, stem to stern, there's no good place to cross-clamp, um, and you really have no choice. And for sure, we see those patients come through. Um, and there are different techniques to deal with that. Um, you know, sometimes the surgeons can do what they call an epi-aortic ultrasound, which, you know, is just what it sounds like, an echo probe that the surgeon holds, and they scan the aorta and look for a, a place to, to clamp. Um, another approach is what they would call sort of an, a no-touch aortic technique, where they're actually going to take both internal mammaries um, off kind of, you know, distally, and then sew them in an off-pump fashion so they don't have to do any aortic anastomosis, you know, because both IMAs are still attached back up at the subclavian, so there's kind of no-touch aortic techniques. Um, you could do a hybrid of that where you could just take the IMA and do it as an off-pump surgery, and then PCI the rest. Um, you could just send the patient straightly for PCI the whole time, send them to kind of the heart team for assessment. So there are techniques that deal with that. And then, you know, from a um, uh, medical medical training, medical education perspective, though, you could say, well, boy, if no one's going to do routine off-pump surgery anymore, how are they going to do that well when that patient does come down the pike, right? And so there are some nuances there about case volumes and centers of excellence mm. and things like that. So I, I agree with you that there are patients who are well-suited to the off-pump technique, um, and I think the messages I take from the randomized data is that routine off-pump surgery probably doesn't help, may be worse, but no doubt there are anatomic subsets of people that are well-served by a different approach. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. What about, you'd mentioned before, and I want to come back to choice of conduit. So you mentioned that back in the original cabbage surgeries, these were all vein grafts. It was all, all they were doing. And now, of course, 
uh, we hear Lima, Rima, Bima, and then the newer, uh, at least in, to, to my eyes, the newer uh, techniques of looking at radial artery grafts as well. Yeah. So tell me about that and what do we know about it? Yeah, yeah, it's really great. So the idea here is that the longer you can keep your bypass grafts open, presumably, the the better you're going to do, right? If this is uh, all about delivering blood flow to myocardium and the bypass graft stays open longer, you're going to do better. Thus goes the theory. Um, and if you look at saphenous vein graft patency, so this is the patient, you know, you take the vein out of the leg, um, you know, you treat it, you make sure it looks nice and, and, and ready to go, um, and then you use that as your conduit. So you take that as a proximal aortic anastomosis to a distal coronary anastomosis. So that's a saphenous vein graft. Um, if you cath everybody who gets a saphenous vein graft at a year, um, why don't you guys guess in your head what percentage of those veins will be occluded at a year? I'll give you the five long seconds to come up with something <laughs> in your head. So it's about 25% of those veins will be occluded at a year. So one in four, which is a really high number, higher than, than I might have thought. Um, that's data from the PREVENT-4 trial, which was a vein graft trial. That's way higher than I would have guessed. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's a substantial percentage. So then you say, okay, well, what percentage of the grafts are down at 10 years? What percentage of vein grafts are down at 10 years? You can think about that for a second. It turns out it's, a, it's about half. So you lose a quarter in the first year, and you lose about another quarter in the nine years thereafter. So, you know, maybe the first year is, is due to different factors than, than later attrition, and that's probably true. But suffice it to say, the half-life of a saphenous vein graft is about 10 years, right? Um, then you would look about, think about, you know, a, a le left internal mammary artery conduit or a left internal thoracic artery conduit, which are, which are synonyms. They mean the same thing. So this is the artery that comes off of your subclavian, and it runs down the inside of your chest and nourishes the chest wall. It's got all these little side branches. And, you know, what the surgeons will do is they'll divide it, clip those little side branches, and they'll leave it proximally attached to the subclavian, but just swing the distal end over and tie it down and astomose it usually to the LAD. And you can imagine what percentage of those grafts are going to be open. Lima grafts are going to be open in a year little thought experiment. So it's about it's about 90% of them will be open at a year. So quite a bit better patency um, than the vein graft. That's also data from the PREVENT-4 trial. And then it turns out if you look at 20-year patency of the IMA, most of those that are open at a year are going to stay open um, to 20 years. So so the, the kind of 20-year patency rate is in the in the 90% range. Um, and it turns out that that correlates with benefit, that if you get a left internal mammary artery conduit, you do much, much better than not getting it, right? And so there, there goes this idea that, that, vein gra that patency, graft patency, is, is, is a good thing. Um, so... And your chest wall does fine, Tom? Yeah, you know, it, it seems to. So, you know, you take one down, and, and most people do just fine, and, you know, it turns out that um, uh, there's some data for pedicled versus skeletonized, meaning do they take the whole thing off in one lump or do they kind of clean it off and clip all the side branches? Um, and that's probably better for chest wall um, uh, complications. But, you know, if you just take one, most patients do just fine. Um, but you kind of alluded to like an important point, right, which is to say that um, just like a lot of things in life, we're going to say, okay, well, if one is good, maybe two is better. You know, that goes right. for like ice cream cones and hamburgers <laughs> and all sorts of things, right? If one is good, two is better. So if one internal mammary artery conduit is good, maybe maybe two is even better. You know, we 
coincidentally have one on each side of our, of our chest. So this came up the idea of what we call bilateral internal memory conduits or BEMA grafts or where they take both the left internal memory artery, usually anastomose it to the circumflex, and then do the same thing on the other side and anastomose the right internal memory artery to the LAD. And that's called BEMA grafting. You guys may see that in your clinical practice. Um, now, you know, observational data show that that's a great thing, that the patients who get that operation do better than patients who didn't. But again, if you think about what could confound that association, you might say, well, patients that are going to get bilaterals, it's a more complicated operation. The surgeon's, you know, cutting and sewing for longer. Um, those are patients who I expect to live 10, 20 years to evince that mortality benefit. So again, that, the, the um, observational data, we'd say, is confounded by indication, right, that healthier patients will get that operation versus just an operation with veins and a, and a lima. So there's some randomized trial uh, uh, data that are, that's coming out now. The, the ART trial is one that's important one to know. And this was a big trial in cardiac surgery. This was 2,000 or 3,000 patients randomized to Lima plus other conduits or BEMA plus other conduits, meaning that they got a left internal memory artery or left and right internal memory artery plus whatever else the surgeon wanted to do. If they wanted to do all veins, that's fine. If they wanted to do a radial, that's fine. We'll talk about radial in a, in a few minutes, I'm sure. Um, but basically, Lima or BEMA plus whatever else. And this was uh, powered, this was a trial, uh, they published the five-year results. I think the 10-year results are due soon. This was the endpoint of death MI stroke at initially five years for the interim analysis and then powered for 10 years. So, you know, if you were, so, well, let's back up. At five years, no difference in outcomes between the two groups. So if you were a skeptic for BEMA grafting, you might say, aha, no benefit, right? We should stop doing this. We should stop waiting to take down both arteries. This is a long operation. It's not worth it. If you're a believer, you might say, but this is about long-term patency, and you have to wait 10, 15, 20 years to see that durability benefit of all. So indeed, the ARC trials published uh, powered for 10-year results, so we'll get more long-term outcome uh, from that, and that'll hopefully provide some clarification on this issue. But I think what we can know is that we know that observational data favors the bilateral approach. The randomized data did not show a benefit at five years, and we await longer-term outcome. Okay. And then what about the chest wall when you take both down? Right. So that's the concern, right? If you devascularize the chest wall you can end up with a sternal wound complication. And probably many of you have cared for patients in the ICU or the OR with sternal wound complications in the form of either um, the cardiac operation, their ICU care, or maybe you've done the plastic cases where you're trying to do these flap advancements and other things to really deal with that issue. It's, it's hideously morbid. Um, it can be fatal. So sternal wound complications are really, really bad. Metastenitis is terrible. Um, and in art... There was an absolute risk increase of about 1.2% for deep stoner wound complications. I think about a 0.8% absolute risk increase in the number of deep stoner wound complications that needed surgery to fix them. So if you translate that into a number needed to treat, um, the number need, or I guess it would be a number needed to harm mm -hmm. in this case, right, because it's a complication, the number needed to harm for bilateral art. Uh, bilateral internal memory arteries to, to cause one excess sternal wound complication is in the kind of 60 to 70-ish range, you know, the one over the absolute risk reduction, um, something like that. So you do have an excess of deep sternal wound complications. The absolute risk increase is small, but, but it is real. And so obviously, um, you know, 
patients with wretchedly out-of-control diabetes, patients who, who have high BMIs, patients who are terrible smokers, vascular pests, those are patients who are a little bit more at risk for that, and you'd want to consider carefully the risk-benefit of the bilateral approach. Um, so there are some risk factors associated with it. Um, but again, you know, of course, absolute risk increase of on the order of 1%, that means 99% of the patients do just fine. So it's a bit of a risk-benefit. Okay. And what about the Lima versus the Rima? Yeah. No, it's a good question. I think that... Um, the data shows that if you take the REMA and put it to the right coronary, it doesn't have that good patency, partially, probably because it's anatomic and the right coronary is kind of down and posterior. Um, I think that the, if, so therefore, if you were going to use the REMA and you can't put it to the right, you have to put it to the circ because you have to kind of swing it across. Or, so if you're going to use the REMA and you're going to swing it across the midline, it has to go to the LED because it can't reach all the way over to the circ. So your lemma ends up going to the circulation. So in art, um, knowing that the rema to right had lower patency in prior data, they mandated that both kind of internal thoracic artery, internal mammary artery grafts had to go to the left circulation. So just because of anatomy, because you have to swing the rema across the midline, um, that one has to go to the LAD, and typically the the lemma will go to the circ, unless... You take one or the other of them as a free graft. So if you detach it at the subclavian, then you just have a length of artery. Then you can take it as a Y conduit off of the um, uh, off of the other one that's still left in situ. And there, people have published strategies on that. I think that most places um, seem to try to leave them in situ, approximately because it's just one fewer anastomosis. But if you have to, you, you can. Um, that also obviously then puts both conduits coming off a single proximal flow point, right? So if you lose that, you're in, you're in big trouble. Um, so I think those are some of the surgical nuances that you'll see. Other things you'll see intra-op is the surgeon will be saying, oh, will it reach? Is it long enough? Can mm-hmm. I get it where it needs to go? And then it also, for those of you guys who are doing redos, has a lot of con- consideration because the if the rema comes across the midline to the left side, um, that's kind of a high-risk re-entry when you do the redo sternotomy. Because um, if you transect that, you're in big trouble. Um, so sometimes those patients will need pre-op CTs to look at the position of that graft relative to the sternum to make sure that re-entry is safe. Right. All right. So the reason if you have a single graft to your LAD, you usually will see a lima to LAD as opposed to a rema to LAD is that, right? You, if you're going to use one, you might as well not drape it across the midline. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the radial artery. Tell me about that. Is that uh, being used more often? Do we have any data on it? Yeah, so radial is good. Radial is a great conduit. You know, so if you look at radial patency, and again, we're talking about if you take the radial artery, remember there's two arteries that come to your hand, right, the radial and the ulnar, and there's good, robust collateral flow in the vast majority of patients. If you sacrifice the radial artery, um, uh, very few of those patients will have hand ischemia. Not zero, but, but very few. If you're a professional piano player, uh, or a professional um, uh, you know, sign language interpreter, or, or if you use your hands in some way, you, you really want to talk about the risk-benefit of, of a hand or a, a radial complication. But for the most vast majority of patients who, who don't have um, professions that involve their hands to a huge degree, um, you can take the radial artery and, and do just fine. So that's obviously taken as a free graft because there's no way to get an in situ from the, <laughs> right. the radial. But they, you, know, you, you do an incision, you can do it endoscopic or open, you take the radial as a free graft, treat it, and you can use that um, instead of vein. Now you could do that um, uh, as a aortic coronary bypass. Um, they can do it if you have a, a lima, you can take it as a branching graft off of the lima to another vessel. 
Um, and the 10-year radial patency rates are probably on the order of 85-ish percent. So mm-hmm. better than a vein, not quite as good as an in-situ IMA, but, but pretty good. And so if you subscribe to the hypothesis that um, you know, graph patency correlates with outcome, you might think that's a great idea. Um, so, so we do have data. There's a it's kind of a hot topic this year. In a sub-analysis of that aforementioned ART trial, remember we said that the other grafts the surgeons could use was at the treatment team's discretion. So sometimes those patients got radials and sometimes they got saphenous veins in addition to their unilateral or bilateral IMAs. And it, the authors published a paper where they compared patients who got radial to patients who did not get radial in, you know, in both arms. And they showed that patients who got a radial graft did better than patients who didn't. That's obviously an observational analysis, right? Because that was at the treatment team's discretion. And then just this year in New England, they published a meta-analysis of the radial trials comparing radial to saphenous vein. And there is, does seem to be a, a signal for benefit in the radial arm. No pun intended. Um, so... We're left with some pretty good evidence that the radial is a good conduit. You might say, well, why don't we use it more often? Um, I think there are a couple of considerations. One is that, obviously, um, this is a long-term outcome thing, so your patient should be able to survive long enough to live and evince that benefit. So if this is a patient with life expectancy under five years, you might not want to bother taking a a radial conduit. Obviously, patients with CAD are also predisposed to PAD, so the radial may not always be useful. It may be small or diseased or thrombose. The other really interesting one, admittedly from a cardiology perspective, is that we're cathing more and more people from the radial artery. Mm. So our lab here is actually a radial-first lab as opposed to the femoral artery where we we used to cath the vast majority of our patients. Um, And we have good data for that, that radial access for catheterization beats femoral access um, on a lot of different metrics. We don't know if cathing someone through the radial artery um, is a terrible thing to then use that as a conduit, but, you know, it may be. We really rough up the endothelium. Up to 10% of those patients may actually have radial artery occlusion, just silent radial artery occlusion, and we never know about it. Some of them will have symptomatic radial artery occlusion, of course. Um, And for sure, you shouldn't use a radial conduit if you're a cath there recently. There's debate in the surgical world about whether you should use it at all, or if so, how long, and I don't think we have good data to answer those questions. Um, so I think I would think about being wary of the radial conduit if you've been cathed through that site before. Um, if you are a professional piano player and you, you use your hands quite a bit in your profession, uh, or if you're a vasculopath and you're likely to have um, kind of poor quality radial. So, but if you can get it, we know it's a good conduit and we know it probably improves outcomes. Okay, that's great. Now let me ask you just out of curiosity, why does our cath lab prefer the radial? Is it oh, because- it's so good. Yeah, so yeah. this is a great topic. Um, so, you know, one of the most terrible complications of coronary angiography that you guys may have seen actually in your anesthesiology practice is a vascular complication. You know, they have a groin hematoma, Mm -hmm. they have a pseudoaneurysm that needs treated, Mm -hmm. retroperitoneal bleed. Um, You know, these are terrible complications, both because of the complication itself, but also because, you know, what do you have to do to your anticoagulant and your antiplatelet therapy when you bleed? You have to stop them and then you put the coronary circulation at risk and so it becomes this bad thing. So access site complications and hemorrhagic complications after catheterization are very, very bad. Um, 
also we know that cathing people through the femoral, you know, the patients don't like it, right? They, you guys have done arterial axis in the leg and you know that after that axis is done, they have to lay flat, they can't sit up, they're uncomfortable, all of these things. So it turns out that we can do a coronary angiogram, um, at least with an expert uh, operator, just as well through the radial artery as we can through the femoral. And then, you know, there are these manual compression devices. It sits on there. It seals up. It's hard to bleed to death into your forearm. Yeah. Um, and, and you reduce axis site complications. And for sure, in the acute coronary syndrome world, the MATRIX trial and others have shown that you improve overall outcome. Um, and then patient quality of life is better. They can sit up right away. They can walk around. They can do all sorts of things. So... Um, on the basis of that, if you have radial expertise as an angiographer, uh, there's certainly clinical benefit to doing it. Now, you shouldn't do things, as we said before, you shouldn't do things you have no benefit, have no expertise in, but if you're trained up as a radialist, um, you're probably going to have better outcomes. So that's the context where cath labs with that expertise will be doing more and more of their cases through the radial approach. And if any of you guys are practicing in Europe, I think the, the Europeans... Um, are, are also advancing this quite, quite uh, remarkably. And so um, if I had to guess, in your guys' practices in the coming five to ten years, you'll see more and more radial access for coronary angiography. And that will impact, no doubt, the use of the radial artery as a conduit for cabbage. Yeah, interesting. Okay, that's great. So let's move to a little bit uh, of post-op care. And obviously there's a ton, and we're not going to get into a lot of the super long-term because that's going to be more in your realm than ours. But uh, Tom, tell me kind of initially, what are some of the things we think about when these patients come usually to an ICU after their cat? Right. So the, the big things acutely are sort of a microcosm of the big things in the long term. Um, I think this is really where a checklist-based approach can be very, very helpful. We have a good culture of, of checklist care here. And, um, you know, indeed, a outcome metric for your program is whether you got the right meds at the right time. So did you get your aspirin, your beta blocker, your statin, these sorts of things. So people are watching this, um, and it's also the right thing to do clinically. Um, so I think you're going to want to think about the antiplatelet approach, you know, then aspirin, um, maybe dual antiplatelet therapy if appropriate. You know, we've kind of alluded to that in some other episodes. Um, but I think for sure nearly all patients should get aspirin absent a contraindication, um, and that generally will be indefinite. Um, the next thing I think that people are going to think about is some sort of AFib prophylaxis. Sorry, Tom, before we get to that, let me just yeah. ask you about the aspirin. Yeah. 81. Oh, yeah, it's a good, it's, it's a great question. And it's one that's debated, actually. Um, so the guidelines say 75 milligrams or more. Um, some people have uh, published papers uh, that say you actually have a relative kind of aspirin resistance in the immediate post-op setting. You should use 325. And they'll point to some of the cabbage trials where they looked at vein graft patency and said 325 was the, was the dose. Um, other people who are kind of pharmacokinetic people would say, oh, but if you want to overcome aspirin resistance from a pharmacokinetic perspective, you should dose 75 or 81 more times a day, not bigger bolus dose once. And, and that probably has some kind of pharmacokinetic benefit. Um, so what the guidelines say is, three, is 81 to 325. Um, I think here we load with 325, um, and then most patients will stay on 325. Now, if you're using a second antiplatelet agent, it should be definitely 81. And if you're going to use an anticoagulant for whatever reason, it should definitely be 81. Okay. But anything over anything over 75 is, is generally fine. And I think most people would say 325 is common. Okay. So know. aspirin. So aspirin, yes. Aspirin is the A of the A, B, C, D, E, F of post-op cabbage okay. care. So A All for right. aspirin. 
What's next? Okay, so B, let's say B for beta blocker, right? All right. So B is for beta blocker. You know, these coronary patients should be getting beta blockers. Um, now, you guys may read papers that may change in the chronic coronary setting. That's a different kind of topic. But acutely, we're going to say beta blockers, and we can even kind of expand that to say some sort of AFib prophylaxis. And this is, um, there's data for beta blockers to prevent AFib after heart surgery. You know, between 25 and 50% of patients, depending on the study you read, will go into AFib post-op. Um, <clears throat> beta blockers are indicated. Um, if you're not going to use a beta blocker, there's data for amiodarone. Um, so one or the other, and for sure, the choice is going to depend on the hemodynamics and the heart rates and whether they're requiring pacing and whether they're in shock and all these sorts of clinical considerations. Um, here, you know, we kind of assess each day for when they're kind of a candidate to start that therapy based on the hemodynamics. Um, but in the, you know, ultimately, you're going to want to get these guys on beta blocker therapy. And when you can do that um, can be dictated clinically. And you could consider whether amiodarone is something you, your center would want to use for AFib prophylaxis. There is data for that as well. Great. So just to get it out there, calcium channel blockers, not a good idea. Yeah, right? I mean, not, not, not per se. I don't think they have a primary indication. You know, I think that they're negative inotropes. Um, I think there are enough other evidence-based meds to get on first. For sure, we see patients who have... Um, you know, hypertension, they need another agent, we can give them some amlodipine or something like that, but I, I think they're not one of the core meds that I get on at the exclusion of, of others. Okay. And there is, is there a black box warning or something around calcium channel blockers and acute heart failure or something you'd... you'd... Yeah, I mean, they, they are negative inotropes, so you have to be careful with that. I think the short-acting calcium blockers can be very, very problematic in that setting. Okay. Um, so I, I think that usually there's enough other things to do in the post-op setting that, that it's pretty rare that we're, we're going to be thinking about those, so, so I wouldn't think about those as kind of a primary okay. agent. So we're going to want these patients on an aspirin unless there's a major contraindication. We're going to want them on something for AFib prophylaxis. That might be a beta blocker or it might be amiodarone. And those are really going to be the two main choices. You're going to want to obviously check to see what your hospital and your CVCU policy is on that. Um, it's somewhat probably surgeon-dependent as well. All right, what about statins? Statins, yes. So, um, so I think statins are really, really important, right? These are coronary patients. They have CAD, so they have a statin indication by virtue of the fact that they're coming um, to the OR. You know, the statin therapy keeps grafts open. It's good for the primary diseases, um, uh, it's a great thing. So these are coronary patients, they should be getting it. Now, there is not data for statins for like AFib prophylaxis. They studied it for that indication. Um, so if you have a patient coming for say just a valve and they have no CAD and no athro, they actually don't have a statin indication for that. But for sure, all your patients who are getting bypass grafts should get a statin because that's really how we're gonna address the primary disease process. So so statin therapy, um, if they have CAD, that would usually we'd say at a, at a, at a high dose statin therapy, if you're young and eligible, if you're older, um, you could think about moderate dose statins, so that would be like a Torva 20, whereas high dose would be like a Torva 40 or 80, Resuva kind of 20 to 40, that, that kind of thing. Okay. Other meds they should be on? Yes. Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, we talk about the glucose control, right? So you're going to want to watch the glucose in the post-op setting. That's going to impact graft patency. That's going to impact um, sternal wound healing. So you're going to think about glucose control. And, you know, we don't say strict anymore. We're not in like the 75 to 110 year anymore, but we're going to say under 180 is sort of where you're going to go. Most of our patients here are on an infusion of insulin while they're on vasopressors, and then we titrate them off to, to, uh, to um, subcutaneous insulin thereafter. Um, I think tobacco cessation is a really, really important thing. So you're going to want to address smoking uh, status with them. 
Um, you should think about vaccines. You know, these are captive patients in the hospital, so they're now coronary patients. They should be getting flu vaccine, uh, pneumonia vaccine if they're otherwise eligible. Um, we talked about statin therapy. You would consider dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, you know, you might specifically consider it in the patient who had an MI beforehand. Um, those are good candidates for it. Um, there's evolving data for the general use of aspirin plus another agent in the post-op setting to keep the vein grafts open. That'll You'll see more data coming out on that in the coming five years, I think. Um, and then the other stuff that we <clears throat> would want to think about for these guys is um, obviously an assessment of ventricular function to see if the EF is low and if they need heart failure management. Um, a really robust program of cardiac rehab on discharge to get them back in tip-top shape after their surgery. Um, obviously, we think about the sternal precautions and advising them about sternal precautions. And then, um, you know, don't forget about, about dietary intervention in these guys. You know, they're, again, captive audience in the hospital, so it's a good time to tell them about a Mediterranean diet, a DASH diet, these sorts of uh, interventions, because, you know, you guys who have done redo operations, that's always a higher degree of difficulty, so we can prevent these patients from coming back. That's awesome, and that really starts uh, surprisingly in the hospital. You know, patients are most motivated to make healthy lifestyle changes immediately after heart surgery. They'll say, Doc, I'll, I'll do anything to get that, to not have to have that again. Yeah. So uh, it's a nice opportunity to do some, some kind of disease counseling. Absolutely. Let me ask you about um, what, if any, stock do you put in EKG changes postoperatively after a cabbage and troponin levels? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, um, I think that... Any of you guys who practice in this setting have seen that, you know, the EKG can do all sorts of weird things after heart surgery, right? And that's probably a combination of um, regional pericarditis, um, vessel occlusion, grafts going down. Remember I told you a quarter of them are going to go down on you, so, so it could be an MI. Um, uh, it, it's hard. And then I think troponin is also interesting, right? You're having a uh, cardiac operation. But you can also have an MI at the time of your cabbage. So, um, you know, there are now documents published about the so-called universal definition of MI. So if you're going to diagnose an MI at the time of cabbage, they say, I think, troponin something like over 10 times normal, plus EKG changes, plus uh, uh, regional wall motion abnormality on the echo, something like that. Um, you know, I, I think on the clinical side, when you're actually at the bedside, um, you know, we're often making a clinical decision. So scenario one, patient looks amazing, doing great, no surprises, um, but the EKG looks funny. There's pericarditis or there's regional ST abnormalities. Versus, you know, scenario two, patient comes to you <clears throat> out of the OR and they're in deep shock, um, malperfused, making lactate with poor ventricular function and a funny EKG, right? And so I think that in the latter situation, you're going to be much more concerned for graft occlusion, and you might want to go to the cath lab, and you're going to look for graft occlusion, and you're going to see what you can do to remediate it. You know, option one, the patient's doing clinically great, but they have a funny EKG. Maybe you'll get an echo to look for a wall motion abnormality. Even if you see a wall motion abnormality, what are you going to do about it because the patient's doing great? Will you go to the cath lab and expose them to contrast versus not? And those end up being very clinical decisions based on um, how the patient's doing, what you know about the anatomy, and then Honestly, oftentimes how healthy the kidneys are, um, conversation with the surgical team to decide the risk-benefit of going to angiography with fresh bypass grafts. So there's a lot of considerations, um, and I think that ends up being a very clinical decision. Um, um, and I think the take-home for the bedside gang, those of us who take care of these patients at the bedside, is that, um, you know, 
become experts at EKG interpretation, become experts at what these patients should, quote unquote, look like as they progress through the post-operative phase, and then have a very low threshold to have a, a heart team conversation about whether the patient should go to the cath lab. And that would include, you know, the, the anesthesiology team, the ICU team, the operating surgeon, and the angiography team. Yeah. And I would, you know, we're obviously spoiled here. We have such great colleagues and consulting services. But I do not hesitate, and I would encourage people out there, don't hesitate to ask for help. If you're unsure, if you've got some EKG changes and you know, you're not sure whether to chalk it up to the fact that they just had surgery or maybe it is a graft occlusion and maybe the patient is not looking good but not terrible and it's a little hard to tell, you know, I, Tom will tell you, I text him a picture of an EKG all the time and I say, you know, what do you think about this? So ask your friendly neighborhood cardiologist if you need a phone a friend. You know, it can really make a difference, and you'd hate to have something happen and you didn't ask for help. Yeah, the, the other, as an echocardiographer, I can put in a plug that, um, you know, if you're concerned if the differential is kind of regional pericarditis versus graft occlusion, you know, the echo can be very helpful. We alluded to TEE, and certainly if the patient's intubated and you have access to the service, putting a TEE probe down and getting a good look at regional wall motion abnormalities, if that's going to affect your decision to go to the cath lab or not, that can be a diagnostic. Um, the other alternative, if it's more difficult to do a TE is you could do um, a transthoracic echo, oftentimes with contrast, right? Because these patients are very hard to echo with all the chest tubes in. But if you can't see anything, sometimes your echo lab can help you with a dose of echo contrast to really illuminate the wall motion abnormality. So that's another clinical pearl. If you're stuck at the bedside to interpret an EKG, um, an echo showing normal regional wall motion in that coronary distribution can be very reassuring. Absolutely. All right, Tom, any last things that you think are important to mention? You know, I, I don't think so. I, I think that some things to keep an eye out, you know, what I think is really, really kind of the next interesting stage of things in cabbage, I think keep an eye out for the evolving concept of like total arterial vascularization, meaning, you know, two IMAs plus a radial artery. That's a nice operation. Um, and hopefully we get more data about that. I think the other concept that I think is really cool um, that's going to emerge is the so-called hybrid revascularization approach, which is to say that we know that the internal mammary to the LAD is a great graft and you have benefit associated with it. Um, but, but maybe um, we do that through maybe a mini approach and then PCI the rest of it, the so-called hybrid approach. Um, and again, that um, gets into a lot of concepts that we've alluded to in these episodes before about heart team decision-making and shared decision-making and these types of things. Um, but we'll hopefully get more data about hybrid revascularization modes um, in the near future. So keep an eye out. And I, I hope this was useful to you guys who have um, cardiac practices. Awesome. Tom, thank you so much for coming back on the show. All right. Great to be here. Have a good day, everybody. All right. Always great to have Tom on the show. Check out the website at ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Leave a comment. Let us know what you thought of the show today. If you're out there taking care of cabbage patients, let us know. How do you do it? Is there anything different? Anything we forgot? Any comment you leave, everyone can learn from. You can also, of course, get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C.com. If you are a fan of the show and you haven't already, or even if you have, but just not for a little while, check out iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you are interested in supporting the making of the show, go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. We really appreciate it. Even if it's just a dollar or two, it makes a big difference. Thank you so much, as always, to those of you who are already patrons. And a big thank you, as always, to Brian Park, 
for the really great outlines that he does. You'll see them pop up on a lot of the episodes. They're really useful, especially if you're using this material for studying. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Tom Metkus, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.